You're listening to the 14th episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for or to or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating around a song from my album, Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to it like one watches a video of a car accident over and over in slow motion. Episode 14, Fine. This song is about being a shattered emotional mess, but as is my way, not taking a day off work or anything and having to sleepwalk through my day without being grouchy to anyone, then having to bring food to a staff meeting or staff event or something like that when I really needed to curl up in a hole in the ground somewhere. It's about how much anger there can be underneath all of that ironclad inert passivity and blank-facedness. I'd entirely forgotten about this song, and I have no real memory of doing it. Having been so incredibly miserable, I threw myself into it headfirst, having started to, from the look of the files, record directly into an older version of Pro Tools, which is what I use nowadays. So the original track has only my one decent microphone used on it, not my good one that I use now that I'm speaking into at this very moment, and it was very oddly mixed until I sorted it out for this podcast. I had not yet watched 10 years of YouTube mix videos, but was trying my hand at bussing and side-chaining and things I do now sparingly, but more conventionally than I was doing back then, certainly. I note that I did the song in three separate bits and then assembled them together. You would think I would remember shouting alone in my apartment all of those F-words into the middle of the song like I am heard doing, but for some reason, I have no clear memory of having ever done that. Pretty funny and silly, though. I must have been amazingly unhappy, and probably felt a lot better once I'd recorded a song. Of course, the heartbreak was almost certainly about a girl, but I'm not 100% certain which one of the assortment it was, either. I don't think it was about having to get my cat Sid put down back in the day, or a girl I was hanging around with committing suicide, or about being told one of the times, as happened every year for the first six years of my employment as a teacher, that I was laid off, only to not really be laid off after the first year anyway. But it could have been about any one of those things. Macon sees the whole working-to-take-your-mind-off stuff thing as very much a double-edged sword. It's kind of a tough one because um, ideally going to work is a good thing because you've got like eight hours of the day where you should be focused on just work and it keeps your mind off everything and you're around people and out the house. But just realistically, it's not that great. Um, you'll be, it just takes one little thing to remind you of that person, for example, and then you're in tears or you just can't do your job. So I think it is healthy, but at the same time, like, it is really tough. Susan Isaacs agrees. I think fine if it becomes a word for you to easily put people off, like you don't want to talk about it, then you just say it. Um, but I think the other response is, do you really want to know right. how much time you got? You know, and you don't cast your pearls before swine. You don't talk about what's really going on with people who aren't going to be there for you. You have to learn who is safe. Your book really 
you know, it's certainly not the first time I've seen a story where someone's on screen and they have to look perfect and be funny and all that sort of stuff, but actually really horrible stuff may be going on to them that very day. So, um, so you're on family ties. Um, you're on, my name is Earl. I have no idea what was going on with your actual life at that time, reading your book and thinking, was that going on when that was happening? You decide to do this, be sure to get some birth control. Well, Rick said he'd take care of that. You can't rely on the guy, Mallory. He's not the one who's going to get pregnant. I don't know. Isn't it kind of unromantic to plan the whole thing? It's also unromantic to be 16 and pregnant. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm trying to think of... Well, Family Ties was the very first job I ever had. Mm-hmm. I was in this dilemma about to become a writer, become an actor. And I sort of flew it up the flag. Well, God, give me a sign. And three days later, I had this guest star on Family Ties. And man, I should have become just a writer. Judy, hi. Listen, have you, you know, you have I... got some nerve, Elaine. I told you about that baby in confidence. <laughs> oh, I didn't tell anyone. Well, your friends certainly seem to know all about it. Oh, my Seinfeld job, I did that when I was in a terrible, dysfunctional relationship with a guy in grad school that made Mm -hmm. me drink Mm -hmm. so this yeah that was um the Seinfeld episode so three bedrooms two baths nice big backyard but no trampoline room correct correct like all houses in the world there's no trampoline room Mm. Ben is coming back from D.C. in 10 days. I did three episodes of Parks and Recreation, and one of them, my cat had just died, and I was inconsolable. Mm-hmm. Um, so in one sense, going to work and doing the thing and focusing on that is it takes you out of it because you have something else to think mm-hmm. about. So that's always good. Melody thinks there's really something to using work to escape from personal life problems. Going to work and pretending everything's fine. Isn't that what we all do on a day-to-day basis? I was just talking to a friend of mine today. Um, There is a phrase that I see sometimes recently in job posts. They're saying, bring your whole self to work. And that's a new concept because we've never been allowed to bring our whole selves to work. You always had to leave any personal issues at the door, leave politics at the door, leave religion at the door. We have to leave all these things at the door, whether it's to work or to church or to your friend's house in some cases, certain friends. Um, And now there's a movement towards encouraging people to be their whole selves all the time at work and wherever. So I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, But for me, in this particular situation, going to work was a huge escape from my personal disasters. Um, I hated weekends. This was when I was getting divorced. It always comes back to that time period. That was when, you know, it was huge and exciting and terrible all at the same time. But that was, uh, weekends were really hard. I felt really alone. And then going to work made everything feel like it was normal. I had things to do, tasks to complete, projects to work on. It was tough because stress apparently causes memory loss. So it was very difficult to keep track of the things that I was doing. Um, I lost track of things. I had to ask people multiple times what I was supposed to be doing for them, what, you know, details about projects. But it was really, for me, a total escape. And it was great. 
from the darkness of future past, Joel rematerialized in my life. <laughs> Joel was interested in providing something to the podcast. Getting dumped is one thing. There's another thing like it where you can be in a friendship with with a woman or whoever, whatever you're attracted to. You can have a friend who you find attractive and you get along and you're hoping for a little more out of that. And maybe once that's addressed, the friendship is just gone. And it's not, it's not, um, there's no conversation. You just, you're out. You don't get to return. You don't, whatever the friendship was platonically is left to die. That specific song called Fine, I don't remember what I wasn't fine about when I wrote that song. It was probably a girl, but it might have been a cat, though, mm. too. So I have had to get a cat put down twice, and it always makes me... It's the worst. It's especially the worst. When, you, when you're single, I think it might even be worse, although... Oh, it know, is. The, oh, the, yeah. But the sweetest thing um, with, my, with my second cat, um, it was a bit of a shock, and what was weird is I'd taken, I'd left him overnight a couple of different nights and picked him up and then brought him back. And, and we never really found out what was wrong with him. But one of the vets was nine months pregnant and she was staying late one night to talk with me about my options. And I was making my mind up and I was just realizing like, I'm distraught over a cat and she's about to give birth to a human being. And I said something that sort of acknowledged that she said, no, no, no. She said, I'm pregnant right now. And if anything goes wrong with any of our pets, that's a whole thing too. Because I have, I have a child, I have one on the way. If something is wrong with the cat or dog, I'm exactly as bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I think animals and pets are sometimes, I think the closest we get to an expression of God's love. I've been trying to read it that way. Like I live in nature. It's beautiful. I see deer out my window. Half the time I look at the window and there's some deer going by with a fawn or something, or there's a family of geese out there. And I don't, I don't want to be woo about it, but a lot of times and I have trouble believing in loving God. I just try and accept that this, you know, I, God didn't wake up and say, well, what can we do to make Mike feel loved today? Like, I don't believe in that kind of a God, but when my cat's loving and uh, when there's a deer, like, sometimes there is an urge to say thank you to God, uh, which is much more Christian than I normally can muster. I think it is a way that God shows us his love. I mean, I, dogs especially, well, dog, cats are their own thing, but I had a cat through all my uh, single life. Um, and when she passed away, I was inconsolable for months. It's just, she was my baby. They but give you what, also, what you need, right? They give you what works yeah. with you. And so my cats have always been like dogs a lot more. They run to meet me when I come home. They want to be picked up. They lick my face. You know, they fetch things. Yeah. These are not, not everybody's cat behaves that way. They curl up with me to sleep, you know. So yeah. that, that's yeah. what you need. That's yeah. what you need sometimes. Um, I think they, they're a great expression of, of God's love for us. And I think it's one of those things of, you know, life if that kind of thing exists then that somewhere that's in the mind of god it's like i don't know god you know it's so hard to understand him you know he's ineffable but when i look at beauty around me i look at love and i think these are also part of him i see it a lot just in teaching my students and helping them find their story and having fun and making them laugh and believe in themselves i leave class feeling really fulfilled and happy and i think that is the kingdom of heaven you know do you know something that's an odd good thing about COVID? Um, despite us taking classes where I never met them in person, they were logged in and they didn't have a camera on the whole time I taught mm -hmm. 
or I taught mm. them and they had a mask on the whole time or whatever, unless I'm imagining it and getting soft in my old age, there is a feeling that we have endured something together. We have survived oh, yeah. something together. And so all sorts of teenagers that we wouldn't normally have much of a bond, there's a feeling of, well, we got through this, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. That, no, I agree. I agree. Ultimately, it was about one of the hardest things I have to try and do on a daily basis still as a teacher, not say what I'm really thinking a whole lot of the time, especially at staff meetings, because then there are adults there and people who might actually be listening. It's one of the biggest faux pauses on the menu to answer honestly when people are only being polite in asking how you're doing and you're not doing very well. The Brits cut straight to it and use as a greeting, all right? And of course, yes, you, being the only expected response. It's basically, you're all right, aren't you? And you're supposed to be. Emily weighed in. You just put on a brave face, don't you? You'd say, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And then you you go down into the self-pity victim mode of, well, I wasn't that important to them anyway, because if I was, they wouldn't have dumped me and... You start going on, on that downward spiral. It's never seen as emotional work to have to muster up enthusiasm for people's pictures of their kids or vacations or pets or whatever, but it definitely is to muster up sympathy for people's aches and pains and emotional ups and downs. As everyone knows, too, when emotions are hard to deal with, for many of us, they turn into anger. Some would say that they masquerade as anger, but I'm tempted to believe the anger I feel when my emotions get tied into knots and aren't getting sorted out. And on some level, when you feel that way, it feels good to loudly, vehemently, perhaps even swearingly claim simply not to care about anything or anyone else at all, even a little bit, at least while you're stuck in that emotional moment. You're not making sense? Well, f*** sense then. You don't care about sense at that moment. Do you really care, though, deep down? Maybe. But the not caring is an aspirational more than a factual statement. And how hard should you care when you can't fix anything anyway? A lot of armchair psychology about anger masking fear or vulnerability, abandonment, betrayal, and hurt is bandied about. But I, for one, think that when you've been hurt... Aggression and anger and so on is a pretty sensible instinct. Job one is not getting immediately hurt some more, right? There can be time to be vulnerable later, once the situation is sorted out or is receding into the past. When you're still in the middle of getting more wounded, that's a time for your fists and bared teeth and swearing, because that's what swearing is best for. Back off or I'll back you off, because I'm not taking this, sitting down and I've had enough. It's not uncommon in this situation for refugees to... How do I put it? Feign faith. Yeah, they'll be coached. So how do you tell the difference between... You guys know what a shibboleth is? It's a catchphrase, isn't it? A cliché. comes from the Bible. Then said now unto him, Say now shibboleth, and he said sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. It was a password, a way the army used to distinguish true Israelites from impostors sent across the River Jordan by the enemy. Let me use some recent exploration of YouTube to include some thoughts on my upbringing and what didn't work about it. When I interact with older Christian people, I often find them lobbing shibboleths at me to see if I'm a real, true, 100% blood-bought, Bible-reading, Bible-obeying believer of the kind they recognize. 
or else we are talking just fine and they go too far in assuming that I am on the same page as they are. So, for instance, when talking to the brother and dad of a woman I was getting to know when I was a new teacher, we were having a great chat about teaching and what was wrong with our coddling of kids nowadays, removing all genuine struggle and challenge and accountability, making everything about feelings instead of facts and wondering why they didn't develop resilience, grit, and force of intent mentally and emotionally. And he tossed in his annoyance that we're teaching evolution and don't have the Lord's Prayer in the mornings anymore. That was several steps too far for me. So what I'm saying, actually, you see, I mean, it's a combination of both. I mean, here it is, the natural instinct, and here is control. You are to combine the two in harmony. Not if you have one to the extreme, you will be very unscientific. If you have another to the extreme, you become all of a sudden a mechanical man no longer a human being. So you, it is a successful combination of both. Let me take a moment to compare myself to Bruce Lee, as one does. Bruce Lee grew up learning fighting two ways. He was fighting for real on the street, as young Chinese kids and teens would do a lot in his day, and he was also formally learning Kung Fu, specifically Wing Chun Kung Fu, from Ip Man, the most prestigious teacher of Kung Fu ever, a man so legendary that a century later, with both he and Bruce Lee himself having been long since dead, instead of making Marvel movies, China makes Ip Man movies. When Japan invaded China, deadly fist. Many rose to fight against them. But only one man had the secret. A warrior legend who never lost his honor. Donnie Yen as the greatest martial arts master of a generation. Now, Bruce Lee was, obviously, a very gifted martial arts student and practitioner, but despite receiving his training from an epic historical kung fu master like Ip Man, really the epic historical kung fu master, having learned everything Bruce felt there was to learn from Ip Man, he turned elsewhere to learn more things and soon started developing what worked for him, figuring out a bunch of conflicting martial arts styles, including the moves used by boxers like Muhammad Ali, and trying them out and eventually constructing a mishmash of bits and pieces. Like I said, what worked for him? Here's my own connection to it. I studied Wing Chun myself for a few years from an Italian-Canadian guy, and in my experience, here's what there was to be said about learning Wing Chun Kung Fu in Nepean, Ontario, Canada. It was very, very structured and constrained. In fact, it was non-committal and cautious. In Wing Chun, we, we don't, don't lean into punches, punches or, or throw much of our body into them. them. Why not? We, we don't. don't. That, that commits, commits us. us. It's, it's dangerous. dangerous. Doesn't that make our punches weak? Well, yes, but we can throw so many of them so fast that that really doesn't matter. 
Kung Fu was comparatively hard to learn as compared to most of the other martial arts, many of which will train little kids, because it was very cerebral. It was all about subtleties, memorizing and training muscle memory through a series of intricate movements with hard-to-trace connections to actual fights. Learning was done alone or with a partner who always responded in a carefully defined, approved, scripted, traditional way to what one did. Traditional move met with traditional response. It was kind of like learning how to box exclusively by playing chess really quickly. It was, in a very Chinese way, entirely insular. It was not informed or inspired by, did not learn from, react to, defend against, or interact with any of the other martial arts from China, let alone other parts of the world. It was in its own little box, and it always needed to have everything go entirely its own way. If anyone wanted to change anything or be slightly different or untraditional, that person got cut off from not only the school, but the Wing Chun Kung Fu community worldwide. Bruce Lee was the guy who decided he was going to start teaching and practicing with non-Chinese people to begin with. And even as someone who was no longer primarily only a student of Kung Fu, and not someone who said he was teaching people only Kung Fu, people were sent to threaten him and full-on fight him to try to make him stop interacting with all of the outsiders. Like Bruce Lee, we were all taught that other martial arts were just a sport, but that Kung Fu was more real, more authentic, more deadly than any of them. You couldn't spar or practice, really, because Kung Fu was deadly. Kung Fu was the real deal. Wing Chun, in my experience, had virtually no free-form sparring, certainly with people using other styles anyway. And along came MMA and UFC and YouTube and, filled with myths about Ip Man and carefully constructed little arguments about why, verbally and conceptually, all other martial arts were unlearned, foolish, and incorrect, Wing Chun practitioners and experts went up against boxing, judo, karate, taekwondo, and jiu-jitsu people, cameras rolling, and over and over and over again had the biggest claims and the biggest humiliations. Look at him sticking his jaw out, too. He's like, come, attack my jaw. Oh, toss to the ground like a ragdoll. So I think this is Sandao rule. Sandao rules is once you take the person down, you can't grapple. So our Wing Chun master is probably thinking, what the fuck did I get myself into? Bam, this Wing Chun guy has no... Why are you throwing kicks, man? Hey, Wing Chun guy, throw... Unless it's... Wow, he is not giving up. That's the Chinese spirit. It's like, for the sake of face, Chinese people are all about image. Look at his face. His face is all messed up. No, you're going to get thrown. Don't grapple with an MMA fighter. You don't know how to grapple. Ow, he just got his butt kicked. Oh, my God. No, don't grapple with him. Get out of the grapple. Yeah, he's done. He's This guy's done. All we know is he's apparently a Wing Chun master. Man. He's just eating punches. Come on. He's trying to do his little slap boxing thing. Oh, yeah, that's what happens when you fight an MMA fighter. Our MMA fighter still using one hand. Wing Chun's always talking about the standing grappling, right? But I don't see any of that. Come on, man. What happened to your slap boxing? What happened to the pox sal? Oh, he's done. He's done. Oh, man. God. I want to see the MMA guy use both hands. I think that would be kind of cool. I want to see a knockout. Give these whack Wing Chun masters some reality. He is scared. If they allowed ground and pound, 
This guy would have been on the ground getting pounded by our MMA fighter. Guys, that was so interesting. Kung Fu just didn't work. Because ultimately, as Bruce Lee had decided before I was born, Wing Chun only worked in Wing Chun classes with Wing Chun people doing and saying, endlessly repeating, traditional, orthodox Wing Chun stuff. Or it might work on someone who didn't know how to fight at all. Put the most skilled, confident proponent of Wing Chun up against anyone who was trained very much in anything, and he couldn't hold his own at all. Not unless he had some tricks from karate, boxing, or jiu-jitsu to pull out as necessary to supplement the Wing Chun that really only worked when meeting the Wing Chun imagined and Wing Chun expected moves. In my Wing Chun class, there was a bit of a power struggle as to who was allowed to teach what, and eventually, ten years after the first Plymouth Brethren Church division I lived through, and concurrent with another one my dad was going through, my Wing Chun school divided into two strongly opinionated factions, who'd been having a lot of private little meetings with a lot of Silum Tao shade thrown and passive-aggressive pactas thrown around verbally, especially when certain people were out of earshot. What was orthodox? What made sense? What worked? What should be done moving forward? Instead of a conversation, a collaboration, growth, and negotiation, it was mutiny, power grabs, and draconian, bureaucratic oppression, and the suppression of dissenting, mutinous, backstabbing voices. A lot of thoughts were bad to think. A lot of things, membership-ending, to say. We don't have styles. If you just say, well, here, here I am, you know, as, as a human being, how can I express myself? totally and completely. Now, that way, you won't create a style because style is a crystallization, you know? I mean, that way, it's a process of continuing growth. Needless to say, all this experience of Wing Chun Kung Fu reminded me very deeply of my Plymouth Brethren Church group and my dealings within it. Because like Wing Chun, our group was very, very structured and constrained. In fact, it was non-committal, cerebral, and cautious. Well, well we, don't we don't read books, books by writers who aren't well-established brethren folks, or go to school to learn about the Bible, or how to read Hebrew or Greek, or how to analyze and understand ancient writings or even just literature. Why not? We just don't. That would expose us to possibly some pretty out-of-control thinking by who knows who. It smacks of human reason puffing itself up. It's dangerous. Doesn't that make our experts weak? Well, yes, but we have the Word of God, and that gives us all the answers we'll ever, ever need, so that really doesn't matter. It was so hard to learn the Brethren Doctrine that you pretty much needed to grow up with it, reading and memorizing cherry-picked stuff from the 17th century King James translation, singing Victorian hymns and praying to your God using the same grammar as those had, because it was all about subtleties, memorizing and training our hearts and minds through a series of intricate scriptural arguments with hard-to-trace connections to actual living. Learning was done alone or with other brethren people who always responded in carefully defined, approved traditional ways to what one thought, traditional questions met, with traditional responses. Again, as to living a young life in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of like learning to box exclusively by playing chess really quickly. Plymouth Brethrenism was like Wing Chun or Mennonitism or Amish or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, entirely insular. It was not informed or inspired by, did not learn from, react to, debate, or interact with any of the other Brethren groups or any of the other churches in town, let alone other parts of the world. It was in its own little Brethren box. And it always needed to have everything go entirely its own way. 
If anyone wanted to change anything or be slightly different, that person got cut off from not only the individual church, but the Brethren community worldwide. If any of us were even reported to have been meeting together informally to discuss the Bible, people were sent to threaten us and try to make us stop doing this without a recognized meeting official on hand to correct our inevitable mistakes. We were taught that other religious communities were just churches, while what we did was more authentic, spiritual, and biblically aware. We weren't just members of or attending a church. We were the children of God the household of faith. We were the only ones doing what God wanted, the way he insisted it be done. Plymouth Brethren people, in my experience, had virtually no free-form discussion of religion, certainly not with people from other faith traditions or atheists. They didn't even allow anything I'd consider actual sparring within their own ranks at Bible studies with their own guys. People got upset and kicked people out if there was any of that going on because it wasn't okay to oppose anyone or any idea at all, to any degree at all, if it was an inside person or a traditional brethren idea. And along came the internet and online Bible discussions and videos on YouTube and filled with myths about John Nelson Darby and carefully constructed little arguments about why verbally and conceptually all other Christians were comparatively unlearned, foolish, and incorrect Leading Plymouth Brethren folks went up against the Alpha Course, Vineyard, Lutherans, Free Methodist, and Calvary Bible people, comment sections filling up, and over and over and over again, the Brethren people had the biggest claims and the biggest humiliations, because ultimately, as many of us were forced to admit, Plymouth Brethren thinking only worked at meeting and in Plymouth Brethren settings, with Plymouth Brethren people doing and saying traditional Orthodox Brethren stuff. Put the most skilled, confident proponents of brethren teaching up against anyone who was trained very much in anything relating to the Bible or exegesis or eschatology or the like, and he couldn't hold his own at all. Plymouth Brethrenism just didn't work, not unless he had some tricks from non-brethren writers to pull out as necessary to supplement the brethrenism that really only worked when meeting brethren imagined and brethren expected moves, situations, and arguments. Ultimately, like Bruce Lee, Many of us brethren folks, when faced with older or simpler folks wondering at our free interactions and discussions, thinking and talk, the lack of brethrenness in our lives in general, had to realize that, like Bruce Lee, trying to fight a street fighter using only Wing Chun technique, it just didn't work for us. Plymouth Brethrenism wasn't enough, wasn't relevant, didn't serve. And when brethren folks bridled at the very idea that they might be missing something and wanted a list of things they were wrong about, all we could really tell them was that whether or not they were specifically wrong about any specific thing, the fact was the method as a whole didn't work. Not on the street, not for people's lives. We'd given it more than a lengthy test drive and had been left standing at the side of the road alone beside a very, very old vehicle that showed no sign of anyone being able to start it ever again. It wasn't going to take us anywhere, and we had lives to live and battles to fight and problems to work through and miles to go before we slept. No wonder rule one for us brethren people was to cut ourselves off as much as possible from any interactions with what we called the world and the people in it and its churches, apart from in trying to get them to come hide with us in our magic castle, awaiting the rapture, which surely was coming soon. We were protecting our thinking, our traditional lifestyle, from 
reality from real life. Please, please stay inside the magic castle. Please, please don't talk to the people outside. Please, please be happy each and every day. I'm getting close to traffic so that we can go and hide. Come up, us and stay in the magic castle. Come inside and never go outside again. Stay inside, the outside is a very scary place. Come inside, you come, let us all be friends. So, if I'm going to value the Bible, and I do tend to love old things and look to them for connection and wisdom, how exactly am I going to do that? Because Victorian's just not old enough for me. This is the first time I'm going to hold my book in my hand. I think I've also been avoiding it because it's kind of anticlimactic. The fact that I'm making a video is also going to keep this from being too emotional of an experience. But it's just weird. I have not held my own book yet. But here you go. There it is. Asking Better Questions of the Bible by Marty Solomon. I'm reading Marty Solomon of the Bema podcast book, Asking Better Questions of the Bible. It proceeds with the premise that you should let something like the Bible say what it's saying, rather than demanding it gives answers to the questions you want it addressing. So, in concrete terms, a lot of Christian Bible discussion is rather like if you put Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa in the middle of the room and had a discussion about it. And Jared Monroe said that it was very important to recognize that the woman featured was Italian noblewoman Lisa del Giacondo. And Josh Van Glute said that actually it might have been a woman entirely of da Vinci's imagination, or perhaps it was actually Isabella de Est or Isabella of Aragon, and that it was very important never to refer to the painting as the Mona Lisa, but rather Giaconda in the original Italian. So Jared and Paul Carrier kicked Josh out of the room and banned him from all further discussion, lest anyone hear his unorthodox ideas. Any women who might have sat in the room where the Mona Lisa, uh, the Giaconda, were discussed would, of course, have needed to sit there silently while the fighting and outkicking went on. And if they then decided to establish once and for all what specific vista, landscape, viewpoint, or locale is being depicted over the woman's shoulder in the painting, with Jared saying it was a well-known valley in Tuscany, with Paul insisting it was in fact an imaginary landscape of da Vinci's own creation, with Jared responding that there was no evidence of artists doing that in that century, it would probably result in the two men walking out resolving never to speak again. Or it might be easier to say that listening to some groups of Christians discussing the Bible is like watching a group of folks poring endlessly over a Chinese menu, using it as the sole and final authority on where exactly Bangladesh is in the world. It should go without saying that the Bible makes no attempt to be a chemistry textbook, archaeological record, gazetteer, atlas, or cookbook. So when we turn to it, demanding how many gallons are in a liter, or whether to subscribe to Disney+, Plus, Netflix, both, or neither, we're being more than a bit silly. Humbling, though, to stop waving it around, claiming to be able to answer virtually any and all curious ethical and spiritual questions simply by having a passive knowledge of a bunch of what's in the book. In The Brethren, some old folks would say, When the scripture is silent on a question, we would do well to be silent as well. But that wasn't a very popular opinion, even in the Brethren, as we had hours each week to definitely not leave any dead air in while discussing the Bible, and we felt quite sure we could tell the future and rule on a host of modern political, social, and ethical issues as well, using the King James Bible as a kind of Captain Rapture decoder ring. You go looking for something in the book of Revelation that sounds like it's vaguely about Chinese spy balloons and artificial intelligence, you will certainly feel you've found it. 
The human brain sees and makes patterns everywhere. Look at some random debris or clouds, and your brain is going to see a face, a fish, or a camel. So that's a start if you actually are trying to read the Bible or something like that. Read part of it and see what it seems to be trying to say itself without you trying to construct the words into what you expect or wish them to be. Don't stuff your hand up it like a puppet. Read it to see what it's trying to say without handy study guides, synopses, courses, and sermons by other people telling you what it supposedly is trying to say and how we should, therefore, vote. And it might be mainly trying to be art, a story, rather than a rule book or book of quotes and helpful axioms or whatever, depending on what parts of it you read, and much of it will certainly be written to people who are very much in a different time, place, situation, context, and relation to it than you ever could be. Above all, if you're going to read a bit of the Bible, read it so you can experience it, so it can speak to you, not purely to provide you something to go to work on, analyzing, explaining, teaching, diagramming, and making four-point alliterating sermons upon in PowerPoint presentations, because that will kill it. Or put another way, that will kill any chance for it to remain itself while experienced by you and your victims. When you go for a drive in a car, you let the car drive you. You don't get out and push it and take it all apart and diagram said parts and sell them to people. Well, you do if you're dismantling it to make money, but you don't if you're using it the way it was intended to be used and letting it work the only way that it really does work. What I'm getting from Marty Solomon's new book, Asking Better Questions of the Bible, is the idea that the Bible was written by people who were very different from we are in a very different cultural context with unrecognizably different opinions and choices. Even within the Bible, the people had very different all of these things from each other, even the people in the seven churches of Revelation. So the various people writing the various things in the Bible were doing and saying very different things for different reasons. And it would be cheating to decide that anything that's not explicitly mentioned in the Bible or lacking anything closely applicable to the same sort of things over the millennia is therefore something we can do whatever we like with. That would be just as brain-dead and misguided an approach to Scripture as claiming that it pretty much mentions and very clearly covers Bitcoin and unions and political parties, gun control, recycling, vaccinations, and all the rest. So the thing to do is learn, as Marty says, how these people thought to, as I would put it, kind of catch their ways of thinking like epistolic viruses, or to put it another way, install their various ways of thinking, given their wildly different situations and agendas, so you can try them out like filters on a photo you're putting up on Instagram or whatever. See it through their filters. Once you get a bit familiar with the different ways Jesus treated people and acted and spoke, and if you think he was the same every day, everywhere, with everyone, I think you might be reading the Friendship is Magic translation, the Greta Thunberg, Ruth Ginsburg Gospels, or the Donald J. Trump Mar-a-Lago Study Bible, instead of what the rest of us are reading. If you have a palette of Jesus and Paul and whoever wrote Hebrews and proverbial, ecclesiastical, Davidic, and Solomonic approaches to all the different things that are approached and addressed, you will have more ways to look at a thing than just the one your phone is telling you is the correct answer. Context is all, and trial and error is key. This is why, to take a single verse of the Bible out of context, the Bible says that no scripture is of private or independent interpretation. No verse is meant to stand on its own. Using it that way is called proof-texting or cherry-picking verses to make it sound like the Bible is agreeing with you depending on what room you're in and what the cool kids are saying in there. 
The Bible is simply not going to tell you the nuts and bolts of the decisions you've been given to make and which you'll be judged for by most everyone, including God himself. There is no book of the Bible telling you exactly how to live the very specific life that you personally are supposed to be living this week. So instead of trying to turn to the back of the textbook, the Paul section, as if you'll find a single correct answer to the hard question you're struggling with, you'll have to do something harder still. Look at the thing as a nuanced thing, with a few possible ways to view it and approach it. Give yourself time and space for trial and error, and fumble your way towards something that's better than most of the other options you are aware of. Difficult decisions are difficult ones because there are various ways that you really could go with them, various ways to look at them, and nothing that will be helped by dumbing everything down and oversimplifying it. A year or so ago, I got a circular saw. Then, whatever I did each day, I had a circular saw, so I could cut deck boards to replace rotten ones in my deck or other things like that. I didn't use it to spread butter on toast or even to grade student writing with, no matter how tempting that became, but I now had a circular saw. In a similar fashion, you could get the overall conclusions of the book of Ecclesiastes or the attitudes of certain psalms, what God's beef is presented to be with the Galatians or the Pharisees and stuff like that. So that's what I try to do. I'm not understanding everything any more than I could start manufacturing circular saws of my own, but having a powerful new tool, one that's quite useful for certain things and disastrous if used in the wrong way or for the wrong purpose. I also got a cordless drill, and I tried out seeing what it might be useful for. And ideas are like that. We say lenses or mindsets or perspectives. I wasn't raised to think that Paul had any of those. I was raised that he had, in precisely the same shade of dogmatic fundamentalism as everyone else who was ever quoted or who wrote the Bible, the truth. Anything else was disinformation, fake news. Well, I'm not saying Paul had no wisdom or no unique experience or no connection to the transcendent, the divine. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. He had that. He had his that. It was demonstrably different from Peter or James's that, and they wrote letters that we kept too, and they didn't repeat each other's points, and none of them commented specifically on my specific week. Trying to only view the whole Bible as only one book that's all about only one thing, getting saved or saving the planet or how to vote or who to bake wedding cakes for or whatever, that'll drive you mental if you do that and only that and do it too much. There is agreement, there are underlying themes, but if you need the whole thing to say something specific before you even open it, I really wouldn't bother opening it at all. You may well have a very specific question. No writer in the Bible picked up a quill, stylus, or whatever to answer your question. The Bible isn't goat entrails, tea leaves, or tarot cards any more than it's a math textbook with the answers in the back, in the Paul section. You have to do the work yourself. Show your work and present it to be judged. And if you end up leaving a trail of carnage after you in life for no good reason, no amount of, I was only following church orders, or doing what the elders said, or was doing the approach the Israelites took with the Hittites, none of that is going to make it okay. In his excellent secular Christmas carol, White Wine in the Sun, Tim Minchin makes the popular atheist point that just because an idea is old doesn't make it worthy or right, I guess. Yes, I have all of the usual objections to consumerism, 
to the commercialization of an ancient religion, to the westernization of a dead Palestinian press ganged into selling PlayStations and beer. But I still really like it. Sisters, my gran and my mum, they'll be drinking white wine in the sun. I'll be seeing my dad, my brother and sisters, my gran and my mum, they'll be drinking white wine in the sun. I don't believe just cause ideas are tenacious It means that they're worthy I get freaked out by churches Some of the hymns that they sing have nice chords But the lyrics are dodgy And yes, I have all of the usual objections To the miseducation of children Who in tax-exempt institutions Are taught to externalize blame And to feel ashamed And to judge things as plain right or wrong But I quite like the song Of course, most modern folks are used to old things being out of date and overdue to be scrapped. But old cultural things, books of old insights that have been appreciated by people for millennia, aren't like an iPhone 5. They are more than quaint novelties, so to speak, more than just nostalgia, more than just outmoded. There is not always a new model that's come along and is better in every way. We just might be good with the names for and the concepts of and distinctions among colors that we're currently using. We're in no hurry to get rid of blue or green or yellow or redefine or rename those. Rainbows everywhere. We'll breathe a sigh of relief at this news. No one's going to run right out and make Hamlet the prequel or Pride and Prejudice the Next Generation. You can try if you like. There probably are people getting paid to write things damning Sir Isaac Newton's laws of motion, as well as his views on gravity for being everything everywhere all at once and so whitely problematic that they cause trauma to even learn them in physics class. But people who run safety tests on new electric cars simply don't have time for all of that outrage and definitely put in the time reading the Gospel of Newton back in the day and learning how to see things his way, even if people like Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking on occasion disagreed with him and each other. But many written works are more like the shark the amoeba, or spiders. Nothing has come along since that has adapted to become incredibly fitter than they are to survive in a post-postmodern world, nor eaten them for breakfast yet. Some things, though ancient, are unstoppable, unchallenged, and irreplaceable, quite simply the goat, like goats, another great example. So 
We have largely thrown away the Bible in modern culture, but I think it's self-evident that no book or books have lastingly, effectively replaced it. It's like Hamlet, Lord of the Flies, or 1984. Schools can decide to stop teaching them in favor of more diverse works or newer works, but no single or even new group of diverse works has stepped up and formed a new canon, outdoing those old ones for good, speaking deeply and lastingly to such a large number of people, and being mentioned and referenced everywhere you go, like those still somehow are deeply entrenched in our culture. And culture is vital. White supremacy must be the only explanation why people are still quoting 1984. It certainly can't be that those old things have any juice left in them. It certainly can't be that a lot of modern people and the art that we make is vacuous, self-referential, reflexively meta, and niche. Modern stuff, including this podcast episode, is on tap, endlessly streaming like a COVID-infected toddler's nose. But it isn't going to last. None of it. No one's going to be talking about any of this in five years, let alone a hundred. And they might still be talking about Lord of the Flies and Hamlet. And that's all I have to say about that. Phil, a really nice guy from England who I met on Facebook, wondered about my possibly rejoining some of the old brethren groups I once belonged to on Facebook so I could share links to this podcast with possibly interested people and get the word out about it more. Not really remembering exactly why I left those groups to begin with about 10 years ago, I tried rejoining Phil's. And sure enough, people were sermonizing about how deeply they felt biblical things as compared to others, or how correctly they understood Bible things as compared to others, responding to comments I made only by copying and pasting bits of Bible verses in there without comment. I called one guy out for that, and he asked what problem I had with the Bible and why I cared more about what people thought rather than what God himself thought. And then he copied and pasted some more contextless scripture scraps ripped out of the page where they belonged to be trimmed and glued into his Facebook activity without any contribution from him in his own words. And one guy actually had a problem he wanted our help with. His problem, see, was that people, when he proudly told them he was a Christian, always, like dogs sniffing each other's butts, wanted to check out which church he went to, as they hadn't seen him at theirs. And of course, he felt as it was against the will of God to name your group or be part of a church, that this was a problem. How to answer that difficult question? He really wanted to not say, Plymouth Brethren. I said he could simply tell them, I am closely associated with an extremist fundamentalist Protestant sect that believes it is against the will of God to take a name or form a church. His response was, the problem is, if we believe the true theology of the assemblies, we are not Protestants. We are not fundamentalists in an American sense. We are the true original New Testament church, the remnant in a dark world and with a dark church manifesting itself. How do we express in words the fact that the rest of the church is in ruins and that we are it without hurting or offending people and without compromising our otherness? I explained that I thought it was his idea, rather than his wording, that was offensive. I suggested that there was no polite, tactful way of telling people who'd simply asked him what church he went to that their question revealed that they were disobeying the clear message of God in the Bible and that he was associated with people who were not doing that. Various and sundry diverse brethren of note on there were legitimately unable to understand what I meant by this. Some simply copied and pasted angry scripture scraps at what was going on. 
So I tried again, and was told the same thing again, that the guy wasn't with one of those wrong Plymouth Brethren groups, but the one that was actually legitimately based in New Testament teaching and being traceable back to the good brethren, not the bad ones. And a whole other guy said his church's roots were Lutheran and therefore more correct than just brethren. So I commented, you're saying that you're the correct ones with the correct lineage and doctrine then. The Lutheran guy responded, translate your comment for this simple peasant. So I dumbed it, uh, translated it for the simple peasant to say, you're claiming that unlike all of the other groups, you are the ones who have got it right, who can trace your history correctly back to the correct people, and that your beliefs and teachings are the correct ones then. The Lutheran guy then claimed that you didn't actually need to be able to trace the history or the doctrine to make this claim, to be the only Christian group who were getting it right, despite the fact that he had just done that, and that the other groups were totally off base. And then he complained about how people criticized his Lutheran-based group for not accepting more people to worship there. So, curious as to how open his self-described open fellowship was... I asked him tentatively if Pentecostals, for example, who were still members of that church, would be welcome to occasionally worship at his. And he said no, and expressed disbelief that people who believe slightly different things would expect, all caps, to be allowed to participate rather than simply observe of a Sunday. Someone else on there said that God's first commandment to mankind was to be fruitful and multiply, making the babies. God's first directive, the one guy called it, reminding us that we needn't feel we weren't still under this obligation. I guess people like me have disobeyed the clear instructions of the Word of God by not having children of our own. I did ask him if he didn't feel that mankind as a whole had maybe not obeyed this instruction long ago to the point of overpopulating the planet. There was no convincing him, though, that there was any way around what he saw as God's very first command to we human beings. Phil shared a link to episode one, season one of this podcast on the group before I participated at all, and I got a sense of the prevailing message of the few comments that were on there. Generally, people were using Facebook like a brethren reading meeting to bloviate about their traditional interpretations of various biblical passages. Seeing the homepage for the podcast, they responded things like, Church upbringing gone wrong, him gone wrong, more like. Can't really argue with that. Church upbringing is a privilege. So sad he's ungrateful. Depression? Sounds like listening to this podcast would make more people depressed. I'll see what I can do. There was, of course, also the expected, I have no intention of listening to this, but from what I have heard from others, I have been led to believe that people who are very negative and extremely bitter go on this podcast and comment. There it is. There's the community where a bunch of us don't feel welcome, no matter how much it claims all are welcome, and tells us how much it's changed from the good old days when everyone had to think, feel, and believe the same thing and not question or complicate anything, lest they risk losing their specially blessed acceptance into that brethren position. These are my brethren so-called. This all served as a vivid reminder of why I don't enjoy these brethren Facebook groups. I would love to imagine these folks are now going to listen to this episode and claim that I misunderstood them or took them out of context or shared private, private publicly posted Facebook comments, but I'm not holding my breath. Now, this episode includes discussion of serious attempts to read and benefit from the Bible and also a song with the F word in it used in an aspirational way. This apparently is me. It's what I'm like. 
someone with respect for the Bible, but who sees as much in it that indicates that wise, holy, and God-serving men speak frankly and graphically as the idea that there are bad words. I see no corrupt communication communicated in saying the street equivalent of forget you or who cares about whales. So I've included both of those kinds of content in this episode, stuff about reading the Bible and a song that uses angry words to express frustration and anger in the same episode. That should piss everyone off. It also has women talking about feelings and men talking about having your ass handed to you being thrown to the ground like a rag doll and eating punches. Whether it's Wing Chun or scriptural interpretation, the men really seem to be into the idea that only they have the secret knowledge and method. But only one man had the secret. Whether it is, you know, spiritual or a, or a question of identity or the way they've always done you know, whatever it is. Um, really, the first thing that I always want to encourage people to do is to lean into that pain. Look at him sticking his jaw out. too. That instead of acting like it's fine, and we're fine and everything's fine, even though it's not fine. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so we tend to think that we only have like one of two options where we think that our option is either, you know, to pretend that everything's fine and to double down on the way it's always been and on that brand and just go down fighting on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, I believe all, no, I don't have any questions. No, I don't have any doubts. No, I don't have any disappointments. No, this is fine. Or we think our other option is to burn it all down and walk away entirely. And instead, I believe that there's that third way, which is leaning into those questions, leaning into the liminal space, leaning into those doubts, those disappointments, those questions, and finding that God is in that place. And even beginning to see those scary things, those terrifying things, those questions of identity and theology and beliefs and all those different things, those are often an invitation from the Holy Spirit. Mm. And it is not anything to be afraid of. It is not everything to turn your back on, but see it as the invitation it is. You might end up somewhere you never expected to be, but you will be walking with Jesus and you will, you will begin to see that in that place there's invitation. And on, you know, even when you're going through that wilderness, on the other side of it, there's always deliverance. Having Wikipedia'd Sarah Bessie mentioned in Marty Solomon's Bama podcast and referred to in an upcoming episode of this one, I learned that Yes, she is a charismatic Christian and Canadian. No wonder I liked her, despite her un-Canadian warmth and exuberance. And I read the following on Wikipedia. Bessie began deconstructing her Christian faith after experiencing a miscarriage, which she says meant, I didn't really have the option to choose the intellectual and spiritual dishonesty of pretending that I was fine. Now that seemed downright relevant to this week's song. Wikipedia continues, This led to her seeing faith as always growing, changing, and evolving. In 2013, she said she cherished her role as something of an outsider to American evangelicalism. In 2014, she described herself as too liberal for conservatives, too conservative for liberals. Bessie was a member of a vineyard church. However, in 2019, she shared on Facebook that her family had left due to her support for the full inclusion of LGBT people in the church. Vineyard. Yeah, couldn't really connect with them at all. Nor did they know what to do with people anything much like me or my friends. At least they were far less overtly into taking time and money from me than most churches. Didn't allow free discussion of ideas, of course. Not really. Not without getting spoken to and taken aside. There were answers you needed to rush to without showing your work. And gay and trans people? I'm glad. It's not my job to tell them how to live. 
My reading of what little the Bible has to say about them leads me to believe that God sends people like that to societies, given the wording of the Bible, rather than it being something they choose, given the wording of the Bible. I just try to be nice to them, quite certain they wouldn't be happier or healthier or more honest and virtuous if I could bully them into living and being more like me. As to me, my belief in a God, my profound inability to see churches and their ministries as having anything much to do with one, and my abiding downright adolescent responses to the mere sight and proximity of women's bodies are not choices. I don't identify as anything as to them. I just observe myself. And like Paul the Apostle and Popeye the Sailor Men alike, I am what I am. And as my sister says, apparently that's never been anything I had any say over, nor is it negotiable. Warning. The bridge of the song featured at the end of this episode contains mature situations and adult language, specifically the word a bunch of times, a shitload as it were. Viewer discretion is advised. This song looks like I intended it to convey that fairly common human experience of telling people you're fine, meanwhile showing an outer, beaten down, demoralized, exhausted, dead-eyed catatonia, worn out from keeping in a seething, boiling rage that just kept getting more sour, curdled and apt to explode out into little leaks of spite and childish tantrums. So I knew I wanted to start with a very serene main song. I see that I played a kick drum in an attempt to make the heartbeat kick that's in Neil Young's pokey, sleepy, cool stuff and in Pink Floyd's soundscape or depressed stuff. Then I played the bed track of the song I'd just written to that heartbeat kick. I find here a vocal mic track that's picking up the acoustic guitar and the voice together. It's okay. Put them right there on my desk Yes, it's three But it's okay I then played much simpler acoustic guitar tracks to that So the acoustic in the vocal mic is doing something different from what's in the other takes This is one of those situations where you're tempted to feel that you now have better mics and more ability to emote vocally when singing and sing on pitch better than in the original form decades ago, but the feeling in the original kind of needs to stay, as does the badly recorded acoustic guitar, and anyway, things are all kind of locked together, so it's a bit of a game of Jenga to yank bits out without due consideration. I see I'd done some harmony vocals. Yes, it's fine. No, it's okay. Okay. Yes, I'm fine. Doesn't really matter. Anyway, yes, I'm fine. No, it's okay. Okay. No, really, I'm fine. No, it's okay. And of course, not content with the harmony vocals that were already there, I had to go nuts and try and fill in every spare corner with a bit more harmony vocal. Yes, it's fine. No, it's okay. Yes, I'm fine. Doesn't really matter anyway. Yes, I'm fine. I'm fine. 
and I'd used a MIDI organ virtual instrument messed up to sound echoey and distorted a bit. For me, all this is like doing digital archaeology on my own music from days of yore. And the song depends for its intro upon that extremely dubious thing I would do often of going to the music store and on impulse buying a thing and insisting upon using it next chance I got, despite not knowing how to play it properly. In this case, it was a penny whistle, which I have never learned how to play properly. Those things are surprisingly hard to play without unpleasant squeaks leaking out of them and slight shifts in pitch off-key. The idea of being my own orchestra, Genesis-style, is strong with this one, but my technique is weak. What I managed to do by layering first takes of penny whistle tracks was imitate perfectly the discordant sounds of a fifth-grade classroom trying to play three blind mice, sorry, three visually impaired rodents, on their brand new recorders. Evan then had to play to the rhythm established by me playing the heartbeat kick drum rather than a digitally perfect click track, and he managed. I'd recorded some very thin-sounding tambourine parts, more for the shake than the usual focus on the hit, and that still matched up with Evan. I decided this week to beef them up with some better tambourine. I should point out that the whole time I was playing this tambourine, I was tapping it with a drumstick, and there's just these little delicate nails that hold the cymbals in. And so in the take that you can hear in the song just barely supplementing the drums with the little tambourine cymbals, I had tambourine cymbals raining down around my feet while I was doing it and had to keep putting them back in between takes so that I wouldn't lose them all. And I added some shaker in there too. I see from checking out bass tracks on this song that I am being much more daring and aggressive back then than I would be now with the bass guitar, but I can hear that I'm getting pulled off rhythm by all that exploratory bass playing, my reach exceeding my grasp musically. I guess a bunch of editing individual bass notes slipping and sliding them into the pocket lies ahead for me. <laughs> At the middle of the song, as a bridge of sorts, having moved on from a mere key change to a mood shift, I took another Pink Floyd cue from the wall this time, the bit where he's singing sadly and quietly in his hotel room, and then with the sound of TVs being smashed, the music freaks out into...
Rather than doing a TV smashing sound, Pink Floyd actually smashed TVs to get that sound, I opted for something more tasteful and subtle than that and edited in from a sound effects CD the sound of a missile landing right in the middle of the quiet song. Then, with youthful enthusiasm, thinking I could do something like Primus or Corn or Ministry, I started on something nasty, the nastiness that had been locked inside under all of the layers of fine. I started with a fairly hip-hop-sounding drum loop from a loop CD I'd purchased back in the day, and that I beefed up to a ridiculous degree in its lower end back then. And chanted the word hate. Then I tried to play slap bass and couldn't really. So did two bass tracks that really needed flea from the chili peppers on them, and which I guess I'll have to try to digitally correct. I then looked for a distorted guitar sound entirely unlike my usual 70s Neil Young-inspired wall of warm mud fare, looking for something that was nasally and, again, nasty. It not sounding nasty enough, I decided to put in a nasty guitar squeal with it, in the kind of seasick, dubiously pitched playing I was hearing a lot of in the 90s. Either don't tune properly to begin with, or bend sloppily so it's not really in tune. And then naturally, in a very 90s way, it was time to rap more than sing. The antithesis to needing to care and be civil all day long and claiming falsely not to care about any of the stuff you're supposed to. The weather, the job, the prices, the farm, parking, codes, potholes, the road. And then slipping to a deeper, more honest level than the shelf of spite and rage we had just gone through, I wanted the noise to then transition into something more pretty and vulnerable and honest. Dying, 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 dying to be free. I did what I could with editing to lock the parts together a bit in terms of rhythm, and when I was trying to mix it, I kept having this problem. I kept turning the main vocal up to be more audible, and turning the pair of acoustic guitar tracks down lower and lower and lower and lower, and always still having more acoustic guitar in there, jumping up with the voice. Then I remembered that there was acoustic guitar on that original rough vocal track I'd been wanting to keep. So if I turned up the vocals, I was turning up guitar too every time. So I resigned myself to redoing the main vocal on a track with no acoustic guitar in it, and maybe doing a Nashville acoustic to fill in for what the acoustic part I'd played before while seeing the guide track had been doing. I did that, and the Nashville on its own was kind of tinny and grating, so I then played a regular six-string in with it to mellow it out a bit. This song is one of those Frankenstein edit things with uh, three bits recorded and mixed separately and then stitched together to go shambling off into the night.
it's okay You can put them right there on my desk Yes, it's three But it's okay You can leave them Right here with me Right there On top of the breast Yes, it's fine no, it's okay Yes, I'm fine Doesn't really matter anyway Yes, it's fine No, it's okay No, really I'm fine No, it's okay I can bring enough for everyone it's not pay week, but it's fine. I will bring it all with me. The salad and the cake. Yes, it's fine. No, it's okay. Yes, I'm fine. Doesn't really matter anyway Yes, I'm fine No, it's okay No, really I'm fine No, it's okay I showed up and listened, didn't I? What I feel Doesn't really matter good what you said no really it was great well earth the job the prices the farm parking clothes potholes the road yeah I'm okay.